You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your host, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pretz, and Kat Caden, with special guest host, Scott Kinder. I know at least for me, when I was coming up in the military, I mean, I became an E5 when I was 19 years old, had no clue really what that meant, and was put into a situation in a unit that at that time frame was a little high-speed kind of unit. And the demands that were there instantly from the moment I walked in the door, I don't think I was ready for. And it wasn't like I had somebody that was, you know, walked up to me and said, hey, I'll be your mentor. I'll be the guy that's going to help you get through this and the whole bit. If anything, it was more adjust fire as you go along and learn under the flame type of thing. So as time went on, I grew into the leader mainly by watching and learning and obviously making a hell of a lot of mistakes along the way. And so that development for me was very painful until I met a few leaders that gave me some true mentorship in my journey, but most of it was by trial and error. And I, I, I don't know that we ever really have done a good job within the military organizational culture standpoint of creating that leadership other than, of course, you had the, you know, PNOC or PODC or PLC or whatever they're calling it now, the leaders course and those types of things. But you know what I mean? As far I as like, those, I, th- I personally think those courses are so dumbed down now right? that you don't get a whole lot out of it, at least from my experiences, even going all the way back to PLDC. And, and I, I think I had a little bit of a different experience, Robert, in that when I first came in the military, I fell right into, you know, a solid team leader and squad leader who basically beat, not beat, but for lack of a better word, beat me into submission and, and kind of showed me, you know, what the rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts and, and all that. And then on the side helped mentor and show me proper leadership. And I've just, I've, I've run with that ever since. And it's, and it's always worked. I mean, I think that you nailed it in the description, right? With the the mentorship and mistakes being the two key words you kind of said there. If you're talking leadership development, I mean, I had a pretty steep curve, as we've talked about in past shows, with being an 18 X-ray and coming straight off the street as a civilian and not knowing jack or anything about the military or or even being a leader. So, um, I guess you know, being mentored even subconsciously by some of the cadre and the staff and the people through the Q course and and then getting on the an ODA that that was just trial by fire, like you said, I mean, and it was, you could pick up a, a thousand nuggets along the way, but it was, it was definitely a steep learning curve. And, um, I, I'm jealous of, of guys like Rudy who grew up in a kind of that elite ranger bat type organization to where leadership is just ingrained through everything that you do day and night. Um, I, I told you Robert earlier on the phone, I just, I finished, um, violence of action by Marty Scovelin about the Rangers in, in Afghanistan and kind of the history. And, I'm not Ranger qualified. I am not a Ranger. I never served a Ranger battalion, but I'm deeply in awe of just their ethos and what they do and the mentality of the entire organization. So listening to McChrystal and and his books lately and and talking, you know, Ranger battalion stuff and and leadership development, it's just I'm in awe of the people throughout. And, you know, I could pick Rudy's brains for hours and hours about some experiences he had as a young, you know, enlisted guy in Ranger battalion before he went to, you know, special forces. But I think it's pretty cool, and it's a great topic that a lot of people are missing. And I see that definitely in the civilian world that we're missing a whole heap of leadership development across the board. And there's all these false paradigms of what leadership 
actually is that are completely flawed and just absolutely incorrect. Having worked with the soft units, that's something that I am envious of. It's like when I came into the military because I didn't have, I think it's so crucial to have that first influence because it really dictates how the rest of your career is going to go, you know, and how you're going to turn out as a leader. And when I got to actually go over there and work with them and I saw the dynamic of these young privates, like 18 years old, having these war hierarchy, their influence and the people that they're going to eventually turn into is, is why they are so good at what they do and they're so, their leadership is so much better than the rest of the, the army. And, you know, I just, I think it's really critical right when you come in to have a good leader and not somebody that can just, you know, let you float. Yeah, I, I actually got lucky uh, to my point before, and it wasn't all peaches, creams, and rainbows. It's allowing young up-and-coming leaders to make their own mistakes and learn from those mistakes. It, you, you could t- it's like your kid, man. You could tell them all day long, no, don't do that. But if you don't allow them to do it, if you don't allow them to touch the stove and burn his finger, you know, he, he'll always be curious and want to jack around with it. I was fortunate enough to fall under some guys that, that actually allowed me to make mistakes, and I made plenty of them. I can guarantee you that. <laughs> And you will, right? I mean, it's the old, it's the old anal- or the old saying, right? I mean, give a guy a fish or teach a guy to fish. But sometimes, you know, we, we don't take it far enough in, in the story and we realize that when you're teaching somebody to fish, some days you're going to come home hungry because they don't catch anything. Exactly. And, and those days are, are teaching moments. And those moments, especially when there's some type of pain attached to it or what we all deem failure attached to it, that's when lessons are truly learned and, and those lessons are ingrained in our hearts and that's what you grow from it, and what's really neat taking those leadership traits i think are just extremely valuable and it, it's not just soft guys it's it's across the military and you take a good leader because soft has their crappy leaders as well you know not everybody's Amen. cut out to be a leader but when you take that leader those leadership traits and you and you transition that into the civilian and corporate sector, it's amazing what can be accomplished. It, it just, it really is, because it, it just translates so well. You know, it's funny when you mention about the, not everybody's a, a born leaner, or not everybody's a leader. There's also a belief that not everybody can be turned into a leader. And I, I, I definitely believe that. I think there are people that end up getting promoted, especially when you think of the military, that end up getting promoted and then struggle with truly what leadership is and tend to hide behind more of the rank and the position and the role and think that that's yeah. true leadership and it's not and you even right. and you even find that in the private sector i think some organizations try to develop their their staff and their leadership teams or management teams as they start being developed into a leader to think more strategically and broader across the organization but even still you may not find leadership true leadership training or courses or something like that internally until you reach a very high level, a director, a a vice president or something of that. And I'm talking about large corporations, obviously. I'm talking about, you know, publicly traded, several billion dollar, 40,000 employee type organizations. Then these smaller organizations where you may only be a $200 million company, they may not have the funds to be able to do any type of developmental training for leadership, you're going to have to fly by the seat of your pants and learn that kind of stuff on your own. But it's those character traits that have been instilled 
in those military leaders that that will allow them to excel if they leverage it correctly that would allow them to excel in that corporate arena yeah agreed i think military have an advantage coming out of course because we learn so many things by trial and error in a real life life or death situation that's much more stressful i think unless you're in a life or death occupation out here in the private sector such as a doctor or a nurse or something of that nature that's a health professional or a first responder you may not ever see that type of stress that you experience within the military where you're having to make quick decisions you may not feel that type of stress until you're at a much higher level but still even then you have time so i I agree if you're making the transition and you learned well while on active duty you should be that much better than your peers out in the private sector. Yeah, it's, it's an unequal playing field, right? Because in the military, ideally, and again, I've never claimed to be like Joe military. I'm not retired or anything like that. But, you know, from my experiences, you go to a board, you get selected, you know, you, you get promoted, you change units, you do a lot of stuff. And your leadership development grows with you through time and energy and kind of this pro forma system that is long established a couple hundred years and is you know fixed and, and updated on the fly but in civilians not so that's what we expect when we when we leave the military we expect this same type of formal procedure for promotions and leadership development and everything else but in the civilian world oftentimes you get promoted to length of time in the company or tenure with the company or right. hitting your sales goals or hitting whatever else and i think that there's a massive divide between being good at your job and what you're paid to do and having any type of leadership or I hate the word manager, but managerial responsibilities, right? Because the best salesperson in your organization that can close, making close deals does not equate to a sales manager. And it does not equate definitely to a VP of sales or the director of sales or anything like that. That just means a guy is good at selling ketchup or, you know, or ketchup to women wearing white gloves or ice Eskimos or whatever other sales cliches you want to out there. So I think that there's this whole kind of belief in the civilian world that through time with the company or natural tendencies, you'll just figure it out. And we don't inoculate them and teach them this strategic development, but we we give them the buzzwords like, all right, go and develop strategy. And they go, okay, yeah, I got it. And they have no idea what they're talking about. They don't understand the three towers. They don't understand any of that stuff. And transitioning to take it back to the military people, that's why there's such a frustration throughout the prior military force. And then the people that get it, you go on LinkedIn, you can see, like, this is why you should hire a prior military all over the place. But the people that get it in the civilian world who never served, they get it, and they know that we bring a lot to the table. But the people that don't get it want to guard that because there's – now you're talking fear and inadequacies and all the other type of uh, psychological issues that come into play when there's some mis- misguided playing field that you're now on. But we, like we just said, though, not everybody in the military came from that – cut from the same cloth. I mean, good God, we, I have met so many bad leaders along the way within the military that actually helped me develop like we are, talked about earlier. So it, even though you can say it's not an equal playing field when you come out, that's only for those of us who survived and actually learned from those mistakes and wanted to do better in influencing our subordinates and being a true leader and learning from those mistakes. There, there are individuals that come out that may have the rank or title because they're in COER or their OER looked very well while they were on active duty and they were promoted into positions and roles that should have never been put in that type of position. And then when they transition, they're moved into maybe hierarchy 
because of where they were within the military. Rudy's going to laugh when I say, you know, coming from SF, I mean, how many total jackrabbits do you know that that didn't do anything but have perfect NCOERs, 100% disability, because they were the guys that every time they got an ingrown toenail, they went to the medic, they had it logged in in their soap notes, and they had whatever else. And, you know, I'm not putting myself on either field here, but there were other guys that were just too busy taking the fight down range and trying to train and better yourselves that, you know, when when I left, I get zero disability. I get zero anything. I, I don't get any retirement. I had no time for any of that stuff because there was a war going on, right? And, and I'm not like trying to wave the flag here or whatever, but, and God bless them for being infinitely better prepared professionally for the civilian world than I was when I left. But, you know, there, there are guys who didn't do anything, but like you said, Robert, they know how to check those boxes and, and do all that. And now all of a sudden they're in absolute positions of importance within the civilian world um, because of this, you know, inflated resume and they know how to play the game. And then there are other guys, and I know a thousand just absolute amazing pipe hitters who would be amazing in almost any role in any organization that aren't employed or don't know what to do or aren't capitalizing fully on their opportunities because they don't know how to translate those very same skills with the same kind of eloquence and, and frankly, BS that the other person did. So, so it's kind of across the board that those who know how to play the game play it and those who don't lose, I guess. I mean, you make a good point, especially when it comes to doing your job and not taking the higher route, I guess you could say, or the good boy system that is definitely in both the civilian sector and the military. But I mean, if you think about it, in the military, you have a, I mean, if you have a bad leader, you can go to the next squad or the next um, unit or somebody, just look at the their chest. They're, you're going to see what rank they are, talk about their experience. I mean, you can look at them and see where they come from. But it, I think what what's really hard is that when you transition to the civilian sector, you can't just turn around and find another NCO to mentor you. You know what I mean? Like, oh, this is my boss. This is who is supposed to help me, you know, get ahead. And when you're looking at leadership in the military, that's like one thing that they are just pounding in your head constantly from when you get in. You know what I mean? Like leadership, leadership. You're going to be, people are going to be constantly filling your shoes, whereas that's not as available in the civilian sector. And I think that's where a lot of people, regardless of, you know, if they retired as a colonel and now they're going to work for some big business that, hey, this isn't laid out like it normally was for me in the military. And I, I kind of don't understand what they're asking of me because it's so vague. You know what I mean? Because in the military, it's like everything is just like, they will just lay out every single nick and cranny on what needs to be done for that job. I agree and I disagree because I, I hear what you're saying and I, I have my own experiences, which I, I was surrounded by some amazing guys in fifth group um, early on in my, my military career you know, straight out of the Q course. And, and I was surrounded by just absolute winners as far, I mean, guys, if they called today, I'd be on a plane to go anywhere in the world and meet them and, and just link up. But, you know, and Rudy was the same way, but I listened to what Robert said and I, and I can't help but think of, you know, going back to that basic training class and all the guys that just had, you know, not even an airborne contract and definitely not a Ranger contract or, or not an 18 X-ray contract, but just a guy that came to 30th AG, went to Sand Hills, Fort Benning, you know, did infantry basic training and then got put into a cog in a machine that was already in war for, you know, or going to war even more and everybody's busy. And, and I think that the, the whole, the military creates great leaders by default 
it's kind of a myth. I mean, you have to be surrounded by the right people. That, right. I mean, I'm not, I don't want all the hate mail that says, like, Scott came on and said the military doesn't create leaders, um, and Robert never invites me back to... That <laughs> That's not going to happen. Just about on, brother. You're, it does not create leaders. Here And, here, and I was going to ask this question, but you, you, this is a perfect tie-in. I was going to ask you guys, if you had to nail it down to one critical factor on what makes a good leader, what would that factor be? And to your point, Scott, the, the military does not create leaders. An individual has to, at least this is my opinion, I'll, I'll, I'll get yours, an individual has to want and he has to have the desire to lead. That, to me, is the most critical component. You could teach a monkey how to do a lot of things. Does he want to do it? And, and that's what makes really good leaders when they want, they want that extra burden, they want that extra responsibility because they're passionate about it and they they just desire it. That would be my response to that. But I, I think you're spot on, Scott. Well, you know, it's well, not thanks. just the additional responsibilities and everything that come with leadership. And to your question, I mean, selflessness is part of that. I mean, you've got to give of yourself in, yep. in learning and making mistakes, being very vulnerable. And vulnerable maybe in perhaps in telling your subordinates that you're not as familiar with what they're doing if you're placed in a leadership position that's unfamiliar. You know what I mean? It's just like it's really it's also giving of yourself, your time. There's more than just you. You're influencing and building other people. It's about their accomplishments, not your own. And to that point, it was all about you so that you could get to that point. You know, you were in the race in a lot of cases. And some people forget that they're no longer in the race when they become a leader. They think they're still part of that journey, that they're still supposed to be climbing that ladder. And in the fight, when you got to realize when you become a leader, no, it's about the development of others. It's not the yeah. development of you any longer. I don't think some really yeah. are prepared for that part of it. Yeah, you could tell. They'll wash out quick. And they'll, they'll burn out, they'll wash out, they'll make excuses, they'll find a reason to, to slink off into the shadows and fade away. Yeah, those aren't true leaders. They don't have in them. They don't, they don't have the, the requisite material to, to carry the title, right? I was on a, another podcast months ago, the Leadership Podcast, and it was run by a retired SF officer, a colonel, a lieutenant colonel, Jan Rutherford, and an IT guy in Chicago named Jim Vasilopoulos. Um, and I think I just massacred his name, but it's Greek, so he'll probably forgive me. Um, but they they study leaders across all sorts of you know military and tech and and just industries across the board. And and Jim put a post up on LinkedIn the other day that said a leader has to be vulnerable and he has to be able to admit, especially to his subordinates, that sometimes you know the plans are going to go right. And, and I'm I'm kind of taking the post, and it was more succinct than I'm making it, but um. You know, in, in essence, I think to answer Rudy's question, vulnerability and just the ability to say, like, all right, guys, that definitely did not go to plan. But vulnerability coupled with pride, and especially when you get, you know, a lot of leaders from Ivy League schools or a lot of leaders from a military academy or a lot of leaders that think that they're entitled. So that, that vulnerability to say, OK, guys, we have to adjust fire and we have to go like my plan absolutely did not work. That's what makes a leader to me is a guy that can say like, all right, this was our strategic objective. We hit all our operational tasks and we're fighting at the tactical level. We're doing this stuff and we're still not gaining any traction, not moving forward. Everything is going wrong. We're failing. Um, just that ability to say it. And, and when you know, I get crushed on social media because I, I say things like I don't think Steve Jobs is a leader. I think he was a visionary. I don't think he was a leader. I think that he was a tyrant and a dictator. 
I don't think he was a leader. And again, here comes the hate mail, right? But yeah, I, I think a leader that. has to be vulnerable. <laughs> yeah. I think even more than that is Ruby that. said that, so send in mail as well. Yeah, send it to me, man. I'm up, hey, I'm up on the bandwagon. Just line them up behind me. Along with everybody else that's yep. giving shit. I think with what Scott said about being vulnerable and admitting when you're wrong or admitting when something isn't going right, but I think what's more important than that is that the ability of the people who you're influencing still want to follow you and still trust you, even when things go the wrong way. Right. And that's how you, you can actually look, you know, reflect upon yourself and what you're doing. Like, yeah, you know, like I, I am influencing these people the right way and we can get the job done because they trust me. You know, even if it's not the right outcome or, you know, not preferable, then I think that's really important to see how that's reflecting on the people that you are leading. My old captain, Pete Sims, you know, typical like thing that, that SF guys typically hate, right? A, he's a captain. We, we all kind of like temporary help or whatever, right? B, he's a West Pointer. So he double-edged sword there. But I mean, and my older brother's a West Pointer, as everybody knows. So I'm not like trouncing the institution or anything. But anyway, Pete was amazing. There's probably not a, a day that goes by in my personal professional life that I don't think of something in the years that I was with Pete on, on the team that I don't think that there's something that he did to influence my life, just how he reacted to something, how he could have done it better, probably, most likely, but he didn't, and he let us fail, let me fail as a, as a growing NCO. And, and I truly thank him. And, I, and I, I mean, all the NCOs and senior NCOs on my ODA definitely had the same amount of development to me personally as he did, but I thank him every day that he gave me the opportunities to do the things that I did, and they grew me professionally, both in the military and for preparation outside of the military and the government and elsewhere, that just made me who I am. And, and it's just the little things that I think of that he did. It, it's nothing It's nothing big, right? We didn't design the Apple II together. He didn't, you know, come trouncing in every day and yell at me and do whatever else. But it was just the little things, just the lessons of accountability of your handbook and your, and your property book, right? I mean, the, the lessons that, that he imparted every single day just by being the character of guy that he was while being vulnerable. And he was just, it was absolutely amazing to, to look back on and, and see. You know, it's funny that you mentioned that type of example because actually the guy that mentored me or I look as my first mentor was an individual that when you think back of what he really did, he didn't do the major things, but yet he led by example by the small things is what really attracted me to his leadership, what he was doing, how he influenced others because he wasn't out there trying to be the leader. He was already the leader, and when he walked in the room, people knew it type of thing. It was just one that of those speaks, things, you know? You said that so much better than I did, Robert. I'm yeah. going <laughs> to put the words back on. Robert, that speaks directly to my point. Yeah. Yeah, he, he demonstrated all of that, and, and and from what you're describing, he didn't force it down your throat. He, he just did it naturally. Yet, you had the desire and the will to observe that right. and use it accordingly. That was my point before. Right. You got to want it to be a good leader. You got to want it, and you know, a lot of times you've got good leader, damn good leaders that that are that are doing the job, and maybe they're not as focused on the mentoring side, but they are good leaders. And the up and comers will notice that, and they will, you know, take the good with the good and leave the bad with the bad. To me, that's what that's uh, interesting. Critical factor. That's pretty interesting, Rudy, because the great tie-in to that in my head spinning right now is that. Not only do you have to want to be a leader, but yeah. since we're talking leadership development, you have to want or be able to be developed as a yes. young leader. 
Yeah. And, and far too often, we see guys, I mean, you know, again, thinking back to the, the young infantryman or the young motor T mechanic or the young whatever, right? The E2, E3 that just got out of basic training and is feeling pretty sorry for himself because their recruiter lied to him and, and everything's not going the way he thought it would go. But I, I can't imagine how many opportunities they just bypass by default because they don't take the initiative to learn yep. from those and open up their eyes and see what's going on around them. And they just close down to it because, oh, I got a year-long deployment coming up or, oh, I got to go to training and my wife's already pissed off at me because I'm at work today and whatever, right? I mean, there's all sorts of stuff that we as young developees don't listen to the developers as they're trying to impart their knowledge. So it's definitely a double-edged sword. Yeah. And it doesn't stop. You know, I, I'll give you an example of myself just uh, last month. I think it was a month ago, Robert. I talked to you. I was down in Tampa. SOCOM was doing a big contract and they do what they call a, uh, like a business day where all the different vendors from all across the, the defense contract community come down. And I had never been to one of those before. Your learning and your development never stops. I'm a fairly senior dude. You know, I've got tons of experience in a lot of different things, but I had never done this thing, this an event like this before. So I'm calling back to to my partners who I work with and, and asking quite some probably some pretty silly questions to them because they've been doing it for years. I wasn't afraid to ask those questions because I didn't know. I needed at that moment in time, I needed extra help or development or insight whatever you want to call it, to, to be successful down there in Tampa, uh, which we were. And, you know, I, I don't think there's a cap on it. There's never a you, – you should never stop uh, wanting to learn. You should never stop wanting to be developed because no one person is an expert at everything. You know, it's that desire to want to be better. It's that desire to lead. It's that desire to mentor and all that. that, that I, I, and, and tying it back into to a transition, that – that you can't put a price on that, man. That is, it's invaluable to uh, any type of corporation. I don't care if it's if you're making pens or or selling ketchup or building computers or whatever, you know. Yeah, I think it's like really important just as a leader to want to be constantly learning, and that's what's I think, you know, if you look at the the last ten years that we've been at war, it's like we haven't constantly been learning. We've been just stuck back at you know 2001, and then now all of these issues are coming up because they just we haven't. <laughs> from that time right you know and it's like I, i'm taking these social work classes right now and you know they to for a social worker you have to constantly have so many hours a year to keep your license and there's just a variety of trainings that you can go to and my instructor she made a really good point she's like something new will always come come up and if you take the time and devote yourself to your craft then you're going to be able to influence the people that you need to properly and that's how they're going to just consistently change. And it's, you know, I look at my girls and they're so small and how my influence as a child is so much different to what their influence is now. And it's, that's, I think, what people have a hard time with is the adjustment of change and having to constantly be, you know, I was told this, but now I'm told this and just to roll with it. So education is so important. And, and wanting to change. That's a neat, uh, that's a neat concept there. Yeah. Because a, another story, you know, my youngest son is autistic and you know he's got this this big bearded tough guy dad and you know he, he has a an autistic meltdown and i'm like i'm looking at it puzzled and i had to completely change my approach to raising my youngest son uh because of because of the autism and it was 
it's so overwhelming sometimes, yet you have to have that desire to learn to adapt and to try new things and different things uh, and change in order to be successful. And um, it, it, I, I don't know, man, I can't, uh, I'll, I'll talk all day on that subject, but. It's such a struggle when you have to go through that process, but once yeah. you actually, you know, you, you come to the point where you are comfortable with, you know, now that you have to learn about autism and, and what mannerisms your son has, but like now that I'm sure that you probably understand it's more of a, it's a success, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and a more of a, you're more driven to, to constantly be learning because one, you love him and you want yeah. him to be successful in life. And it's just, it's important to you now. Yeah. Well, yeah. you guys always do on the teams something that conventional army doesn't always do, and that's an AAR. So you do an after-action review all the time, and by doing that, you're able to look back retrospectively and see how should you have done things. You call people out individually, the whole thing. Well, you've got to do the same thing. You've got to look at yeah. yourself at times and reevaluate what you're doing, what you did in the past. I can't tell you how many times I've woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I go, Oh, geez, I should have done X. Or why did I say that? I need to clarify that tomorrow with this individual so that they clearly understand what my intent was or what I was trying to go with. Uh, if you if you don't do that and you're not waking up in the middle of the night, then you're not really maybe thinking about how you're being you know received. That's maturity and vulnerability. Yeah. You know, yeah. thinking waking up in the middle of the night and being able to go in to talk to that person the next day. So a lot of people yeah. can't do I that. Think that just no, agree. That's why I've got the gray they, in my beard, can. Can't, so. And they, they won't do it. And I think that, you know, it, it's almost a toss-up sometimes. If I had to think of one of the, the single biggest lessons I learned from, from my time in SF, it, it would definitely be AARs. After-action reviews are absolutely brutal. Sometimes they you're just sitting there, and it's like the world is just taking a, a crap on you because of something that you did, and you're feeling sorry for yourself, and it's horrible, especially as a new guy on a team or whatever. But they are absolutely gold as far as how you can learn to, to grow as, as both a person. Uh, I hate the word operator, but I do AARs constantly. Um, and it's so ingrained in me from my time in the teams. And I have a funny story, right? So here I, I leave the teams as a, as a young NCO, and I go to the government route, and now I'm now a lieutenant colonel equivalent in MARSOC, right? So I'm, st I'm standing up the, the 3X section of MARSOC at the regimental level. And, and I would go to all these meetings, and I had these Marine gunnery sergeants or master sergeants that worked for me as a direct report. And I would ask them every time without the meeting, hey, man, what did I say that was, was good or what did I say that was stupid in the meeting? And, and they would always say at first when they started working for me, you know, oh, everything was great. And I knew it wasn't great because I'm briefing two stars and colonels and one stars and whatever. So finally, I had this one ops chief that worked for me. He's a pretty famous Marine. His, his nickname is Pappy. Awesome dude. Um, amazing guy. So finally, Pappy, for the first six months he worked for me, every meeting we left, I'd be like, hey, man, what I say? That was stupid. And he'd go, nah, man, you're fine. He's from Western North Carolina, right? Like, nah, man, you're all right. Nah, Scott, you're good. And finally, after about six months, um, I walked out of a meeting with a two-star general, and Pappy goes, before I could even ask him, he goes, man, the general really hated it when you said big boy rules apply. And I said, yeah, dude. And he knew. Like, it started, I started ingraining within my organization, in, in my small world, that 
this is what we do. We, we critique ourselves and we learn from our mistakes and we think of things to sustain and things to improve and, and all this stuff that we do. But I won't get off in this conversation and I'll AAR what I said yep. and I'll AAR, you know, my timelines and I'll AAR whatever. I'll AAR the comment I just make while Robert or Rudy starts talking. I AAR constantly. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> trying to develop like and it's not that I'm always up in my head I'm not some psycho perfectionist but I consistently I'll stop talking now yeah. <laughs> I love but you're spot on Scott because and, that, and that's a good leadership trait that you're demonstrating in that you're creating a trust environment because you, here you are uh, speaking to your subordinates you're conducting an AER on yourself first and you've created the environment that is open that they feel they can trust you that they can say okay scott you were all left up on this or next time don't say that or maybe we should have stayed on topic with with whatever so and when he said it, i laughed for the record i was like great <laughs> finally that's what i want to hear yeah 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 the but last perfect good. guy walked the earth yeah. two thousand years ago like i, I know i'm not him <laughs> good stuff thinking back for me it was reading I actually started going through different training seminars online and stuff like that, but I also started reading books. Reading books, I found, was a great way for me to do development. One I shared on social media, Execution. Another one is The Extraordinary Leader by John Zinger. I don't relate very well to really? uh, Robert reading. Um, I, I mean, I'm obviously capable of reading, and, and I read on amazing, but... <laughs> I hope so. For me, <laughs> for, for me it's, it's, I'm a hands-on guy. You know, I built my own computer. I'm not a computer guy. I built my own computer. I've built three of them now uh, for me and the boys. And, and they're all, you know, we call them Death Star 1, Death Star 2, Death Star 3 because they're badass computers. But it was trial and error versus, you know, sitting down and reading a manual on how to do it. Probably more mistakes that way, but yeah. uh, whatever. It worked out all right. <laughs> I'm more of a visual learner. And things work like, like you, Rudy. It's like trial and error. I need to figure out why this is right and, and why it's wrong, too. I read and I know how to read. I feel a little educated, but just seeing a good example of how things should be done is, I think it's really important when you're teaching people how to learn. But I really think it's important that whoever is running the leader, whoever is running the AR, they're not just doing it because they have to, you know what I mean? They want it to be critiqued. They want their guys to be involved and, and actually give their opinions. And I think that makes your guys more vulnerable and want to be open with like, hey, maybe we should do this and not so intimidated in that type of environment. And I always felt like when we did ARs, like whenever I did them with, uh, you know, my guys, it's like, tell me what I did, you know. And it's, of course, it would turn into a more negatives on <laughs> what I needed to do, right? But it, I think you have to create the environment and the atmosphere for people to want to to open up and actually say how they feel about things. Powerful tools when used the right way, but. You have to mentor and lead individuals to, to get them to understand the value in that. And I think one of the reasons that people don't take it seriously or, or just gaff it off is fear. I mean, yeah. they think of fear of reprisals, fear of speaking up. And, and so one of the best techniques, again, going back to Pete and the leadership of my ODA, that they imparted on me is I was a very, very, very junior guy on my team for a pretty long time because I had no military experience other than the Q course and basic training in airborne school. They would start all AARs with me, the junior guy, because they didn't want my 
words or, or my thoughts to be impacted by the senior guys because the last thing you want is me going like, oh, yeah, I'll take what, what, yeah, what he Greg said, said you know. <laughs> Ranger Battalion, OEF veteran, you know, already, already the E7, you know, I'll take what Greg said and I'll just couple that. So I found myself on the, on the chopping board quite a bit because I knew that we would in any event, right, run through a shoot house, do a transportation movement, do any logistical thing, do any yeah. type of training environment, IV day, range day, anything. And the AAR would start with, Scotty, what do you think? And I would go, Ugh. and I would have to like say that. And at first, you know, it was like, uh, and trying to tap dance and, a, you want to try and sound smart, which is rare for me, and B, you want to sound, you know, like you know what you're doing and professional. Um, but, you know, you try and do all these things, and I was terrified. But over a week, two weeks, three weeks, I started to realize I know this is coming. It's going to happen to me. I have to prepare myself. So it started ingraining the very essence of the AAR into me. And then I realized if I said something, even slightly confrontational, like, I don't understand why we did X like that. Why, why did that happen? You know, and I could ask a question and, and there was no like, Oh my God, Scott, you're so stupid and you have no military time and you shouldn't be here. You know, your stuff's going to be in the hallway and get to the B team. Right. It was, there was no reprisals. There was an explanation. And, and sometimes the AARs got very heated, but we always knew that once that AAR was conducted and done, it was, it was beer time. Right. I mean, it was time to like, we're all brothers again. You know, you could battle and battle and battle and go, go to war with somebody over your thoughts on there. And it was a safe space. That, God, I hate that word, a safe space to do that, but you could still have that ability to battle with somebody, air your grievances, air your thoughts, air your concerns, air whatever lessons learned that you wanted to. And at the end of the day, it's family time again. Right. I mean, you just put it under the water, under the bridge and water starts flowing in. I think what we just talked about is being vulnerable, having some selflessness about you. Not everyone learns the same way. Learn how to adapt. Do after-action reports on your team as well as yourself. You're going to learn. You're going to see the bad from other leaders. Grow from that. But hey, just get out there. I mean, one of the best ways to be a leader is just getting out there and being a leader. The desire to lead. Be okay with failure. So a kind of an intimate uh, personal story of mine is back in uh, 2004, I lost four teammates in Afghanistan down in um, Maru Valley. It was horrible. I was devastated. I was crushed. I lost my team leader. I lost my senior weapons guy. I lost uh, two Navy SEALs that were with us. And it could have been prevented. And I felt, for the longest time, I felt responsible for that because there was a lot of things I could have done differently as the second in command on that detachment for that mission. Again, I, I tie that back into, first of all, you recognize a mistake was made, and it, it was tragic. But regardless, everyone on the team is now looking at me at that moment and in the gunfight. And, you know, you have to want to do it, and you have to uh, have that desire to not quit. I wanted to crawl into a, a, under a fucking rock in a fetal position and hide. You know, it was, it was horrible. It was devastating. But we grow. We learn. Uh, learn from our mistakes. And, and move on. But uh, to me, that the, the most powerful thing of to being a leader, a successful leader, is a desire to want to be a good leader. I, I think that's critical. And, I, and just to add to that, I, I think a lot of people, especially leaders, when, I, when they do fail or when there's no success or they don't get that next promotion or one of their guys fails, is that they feel a really strong sense of shame. And it's hard to battle and they don't like to admit to it. So yeah. um, you, you kind of fall, you, you do, you feel like that's it for you. The last few months, I know I've been, you know, in the background for a little bit and it's been really tough for me, but I, I've 
growing as a person, understanding that, you know, like I, I know that I'm a good leader. I don't need to be so critical and I need to accept that it's okay to not be as successful. I've had the worst professional year of my adult life and I'm 41 years old now. Horrific. I won't go into details. And again, you know, I hear myself telling people like, hey, man, buck up, never quit. It'll get better. This, this, that, whatever. And so finally, you know, like we have to realize if we espouse these ideals, then we have to be able to say to ourselves, hey, it's all right. Figure it. Scott, figure it the hell out, man. Like get up, pick it up and, and go and figure it out. You know, quit feeling sorry for yourself. Quit doing this. Quit doing whatever. And one of the Robert asked me about books, and, and I didn't answer. But so I'm I'm listening to McChrystal's books right now. I finished Team of Teams months ago, and and I like that very much. And, and I like um his new bio, my sure not new bio, but I'm listening to his bio, my sure of the task. And so he's it's weird because he's a four star general when he when he writes it right. But I mean, if you look at how he as a leader identified what an organization like JSOC was doing great and, and poorly in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. They transformed operations at a very high level, on the ground, real time, on the fly, and that's a pretty cool example of leadership, about as pure as it gets, and it was impressive as hell. But one of my default leadership books that I recommend to everybody is, it's not military related at all, but it's Entree Leadership by Dave Ramsey. And if you know Dave Ramsey, the financial guy, he went made millions of dollars when he was in his early 20s in the real estate markets and it collapsed on him and he went broke like red beans and rice lights being turned off wife and kids almost going hungry broke 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 creditors calling you know had to trade trade his mercedes in for a 20 year old beater car and everything else but he took those lessons yeah he took those lessons and he just grew and now he's hundreds of millions of dollars in financial advice and common sense practices and entree leadership is all about most importantly number one that failure that made him who he is and number two the leadership principles that 20 years in the trenches of running this massive business have taught him and it's it's absolutely eye-opening when you look at it from a pure civilian perspective and when you can translate as we all can the civilian and military talk the lessons and the things that he's doing and the way that he runs that Lampo group in the organization, it's pretty on par with how I would run it with the lessons that I learned in, you know, what I would deem pretty elite military units. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at mentors, the number four MIL, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. It doesn't matter whether you are searching for your passion or purpose, finding your way through a military or civilian career, working on your fitness, or just about to climb Mount Kilimanjaro. Get after it.